I don't know if you've stopped and thought about this this evening. It's amazing that we live in a place where Friday night can look like the middle of winter and then tonight can look like the beginning of summer. And so we're really glad that you're here to be with us on our Sunday nights. Uh, Our Sunday night times have been very special, especially this year as we're working through our daily Bible readings together. Sunday nights are a good time for us to reflect on what we've been reading and try to put some of those lessons into practice in our lives. Uh, We do want to remember our group that's in El Salvador. Uh, We want to continue to pray for them as uh, they undergo an important work there, and they will be helping in the planting of a congregation in El Salvador. And that's just an exciting idea to think about, uh, a concept to be praying for, and we look forward to hearing their report as they return. So we definitely want to be keeping them in our prayers. As we spend our Sunday evenings looking over some of the daily Bible readings that we've been going through, I just want to comfort you and to let you know that I know in the past we used some pictures to help us remember not only the books of the Bible and their key words, their themes, and I just want to let you know I haven't forgotten about those. I know you were probably worried about that, but we're going to review a few of those and then learn a few more as we begin our time together this evening. You may remember... That when we think of the book of Genesis, we look at this picture and we remember the book of Genesis with a big N. And as we think about that big N in the book of Genesis, that reminds us of the key word beginnings. So when we think of Genesis, we're thinking of beginnings. That's where we have the beginning of creation, the beginning of the world, beginning of man, the beginning of sin. And there are so many beginnings that take place in that book. So Genesis, key word is beginnings. And then after that comes the book of Exodus. And this picture is probably pretty plain in describing the theme of the book of Exodus, which is exiting. And Exodus tells us about Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and what took place as they go to Sinai and they receive the law of God. So when we think about the book of Exodus, the key word there is exiting. Now here's one that's a little bit more difficult uh, for us to put together. When we come to the third book of the Bible, we have a picture here that at first looks very complicated. But if you'll notice... You have an individual here. He's wearing a robe. He's wearing Levi's, as you can probably tell. And if you'll notice, there's someone that's doing something very specific. He is giving his left foot a kiss. And so if you think about that phrase, left foot a kiss, and then you run that together really quickly, uh, what book of the Bible does that remind you of? Leviticus. So when we think about Leviticus, this individual in his robe and his Levi's, we think about the two things that he's holding here. The third book of the Bible is Leviticus, and he's holding two very specific things. He has offerings in one hand and a feast in the other. And Leviticus tells us about the offerings and the feasts that the Israelites were commanded to observe. So when I think of the book of Leviticus, I'm going to think of offerings and feasts. So just make a mental note there, and we'll go on to the next book that we've come to in our readings, which is probably a little easier to spot, because here we have numbers. Numbers in the desert. So when we think of the fourth book of the Bible, that name will immediately spring to mind, Numbers. And if you'll notice, these numbers are a little bit confused. They're wandering around the desert, and that's going to be our key word for the book of Numbers, wandering Because Numbers tells us about God's people. You'll remember after they scout out the land, the promised land, 
And then instead of listening to Joshua and Caleb, who were excited about God giving that land to them, they listened to the other ten spies. Because of that, they don't enter in. And as a result, an entire generation wanders around. And they don't enter into the promised land. It's the next generation that does. So just a quick review as we think about uh, the Old Testament books. We have the first book, Genesis. The key word is beginnings. Second book, Exodus. And the key word is exiting. The third book is Leviticus. And the key word is offerings and feasts. And then we have numbers. We think about wandering. Now here are a couple of others we've gone over already. We've got the palm trees, the palms. And that reminds us of the Psalms. And you'll notice what they're doing here. They're praising and praying. Psalms are about praise and prayer. Because in the Psalms, we see all of the different spectrum of mankind's emotions coming before the Lord. We also remember this book of the Bible, Proverbs. And the theme of Proverbs is wisdom. Just like we mentioned this morning. Proverbs is constantly telling us to get wisdom. So now we come to the New Testament. We've just got a couple more to go. Well, here we have a big mat with a U on it. So if we think about this mat and this U, and we put those two together, we're reminded of Matthew. And so Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And in Matthew, you'll notice here there's a king sitting here on his throne because Matthew depicts Jesus as the king of kings. And so when we think of the book of Matthew, our key word is king of kings. And just when you thought that these couldn't get any better, we come to the second book of the New Testament. You'll notice here in this picture that there is a boat here. And it's not just any boat. If you'll notice, this boat looks a lot like an ark, doesn't it? And there's a big M on the front. So here we have a big M ark. And so as we think about the book of Mark, we're reminded of this picture here. The book of Mark, and it tells us something very specific. Uh, Here you have a server who's taking a delicious meal uh, to an, an anteater, and he's He's got an ant there on his tray. The ant doesn't look very excited about what's about to happen. But he's taking this ant on this tray. And if you'll notice, what is he doing there? Someone has convinced this server that he's going to serve an ant. And so if we put serve and ant together, we realize that Mark depicts Jesus as a servant. And so when we think about the book of Mark, we're going to think about the key word servant. Jesus is is a servant. And Mark is going to constantly be showing us uh, from one chapter to the next. We'll read the phrase, and then they went and did this. And immediately Jesus went here. Constantly we're seeing Jesus serve. And so when we think of Mark, the key word is servant. And hopefully those will uh, be just goofy enough to stick with us as we think about the major themes of the Bible. We're going to be looking in Mark chapter 8 as we begin This evening. If you haven't already, I wish you'd turn there in your Bibles as we work through this passage together. We're going to be spending most of our time here in the book of Mark looking at some of our readings throughout the week and seeing some lessons that Jesus has to teach us. I don't know about you, but I don't know of anyone who doesn't like bread. Have you ever met anyone who just didn't like bread? And, I mean, you may be like me, and you'd rather have the white bread that's not quite as good for you than the multigrain, multivitamin stuff. But every one of us, at some point, has eaten and enjoyed a certain kind of bread. In fact, I remember, you'll probably recognize uh, this loaf of Bay's bread right here. I remember the first time that someone dropped by the office one of these loaves 
of Bay's Bread. It was my first summer that I was working here, and I decided, because everyone had told me how good it was, I decided I was just going to take it like this, I was just going to open it up, and I'd just have one piece. It was kind of the middle of the day, just a little, a little snack after lunch. And that was a very good piece of bread. And so it was just sitting on my desk, and I'd, I'd do something else, and I'd look over at that, and I'd say, well, that didn't take very long. I'll just grab another piece. And before I noticed, I was over halfway done with a loaf of bread by the end of the day. And uh, that's probably because at the time I was living by myself and not doing very much grocery shopping. So that probably has a lot to do with it. But as we think about bread, can't you think of, of some bread that you really enjoy? You probably can't smell this uh, from up here, but it smells wonderful. In fact, you may go into stores. If you've ever been to a, a country store, sometimes they'll be cooking bread. They'll be preparing bread just so that smell will sort of waft through the store. I'm even told that some uh, real estate agents will advise if you're going to sell a house that, that you'll prepare some bread, some freshly baked bread. And so that when people walk in to look at your house, they'll have that smell and they'll associate all those good memories with walking through your house. It, it just does something to us. It's interesting to see that the word for bread is used over 300 times in Scripture. We see in the Old Testament when God was taking care of his people that were going through the desert, he gave them bread from heaven, manna. When Jesus offers us the model prayer, he talks about giving us each day our daily bread. And so bread is something that can relate to all cultures. And what we're going to be focusing on this morning are some, some lessons that we have from some leftovers of bread that we find in Jesus' ministry. And we read that in a very interesting account in Mark chapter 8. Many of us are familiar with Jesus feeding the 5,000. We may not be as familiar with what happened just a couple of chapters later in Mark chapter 8. And as we work through this text together, we'll begin here in verse 1. In those days, the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now let's just pause there for a moment, because as we mentioned earlier, it's only been a couple of chapters since the disciples have seen Jesus take a few loaves and a few fish and feed over 5,000 people, at least 5,000 people that were there. And so we need to understand something that Mark includes, a little detail that he tucks away here uh, when we, we read the end, towards the end of chapter 6. In verse 52, he says the apostles had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. That's going to be important to remember as we see what happens here in this miracle. Almost like those who came to hear Jesus' parables and their hearts were hardened and they didn't understand the spiritual impact of what he was saying, the apostles didn't quite fathom what had taken place there with the loaves as Jesus had taken care of those thousands of people. And so they asked this question, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Jesus responds by saying, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, obviously, this basket isn't very large. 
But I want this to be sort of a visual reminder for us of what it would have been like to have just a few loaves turned into enough to fill a crowd that large and still have baskets left over. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. And then continuing in verse 11, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, it's important to pause right here because this may seem odd to us that the Pharisees would ask for a sign. Haven't they heard about all the miracles Jesus has performed, the healings that have taken place, the fact that he's fed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fish? It seems here that this phrase, a sign from heaven, was meant as literally that. Remember, Jesus, during Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees really didn't deny the miracles that had taken place. Now, sometimes they claimed that they were a result of the demon, that Jesus was performing them as a result of the work of Satan, but they never really denied that those miracles actually took place. So here they're asking for a sign from heaven. Maybe something similar to what happened when Jesus was baptized, that the heavens would open up and that God would speak down, or something like we saw, see in the Mount of Transfiguration, that God would make his voice known to them. And Jesus sighs, and in verse 13, he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. And verse 14 is evidence that the Bible is inspired. In my opinion, if you were having Jesus' followers put together the Word of God and there was no inspiration involved and it was all humans involved in the process, I don't think I ever would have included this detail. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. We've seen twice Jesus feed thousands of people. There have been baskets left over, but the disciples forgot to take bread with them. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And so in verse 15, then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. Now let's just pause and and put ourselves right there in the midst of the disciples for just a moment. Just imagine that you're sitting there listening to Jesus. Obviously, Jesus here is responding to what the Pharisees had said, and he gives them a warning, a warning that he's given elsewhere in other gospels. Beware of the, the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees, that little bit that can spoil the whole. Beware of that little bit that has a far reaching effect. He's thinking spiritually. Just imagine, it's almost humorous to think of the apostles as they hear the word yeast and they start thinking, oh, who brought the bread? Did anyone, and they, they look around, did you bring the bread? Did you not? And maybe they're whispering while Jesus is speaking this so he won't hear them. Who was, I thought you were going to bring, all we have is one loaf? Really? Only one loaf of bread? All this is going on while Jesus is trying to make a spiritual point. And of course, he knows what's taking place in verse 17. And he says, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Remember that fact Mark revealed to us earlier? Their hearts were hardened. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And he takes them through what's happened in the past few chapters. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. And in verse 21, you can almost hear Jesus respond saying, how is it that you do not understand? How is it you have seen all this take place and you don't realize that bread is not the issue? 
that physical bread is not an issue with me. And so there are some lessons they were supposed to have learned from the loaves. And they're lessons, I think, that are available and applicable for us today. As we think about some lessons from leftovers. Baskets full of bread. I think the first thing we can learn here is that God's blessings are available to all. And the way we can tell that is by looking at the context of the book of Mark. And seeing the different events that take place beginning just a chapter earlier. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is dealing with those who were so focused on outward foods and dietary requirements, they'd forgotten that it's what's on the inside that really defiles a person. And so Jesus makes this statement that whatever goes into a man from outside, in verse 18 of Mark 7, cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart. Verse 20, he would say, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries. And he goes on to describe what takes place that flows out of our hearts. Jesus here is making the point that it's not what we take in that defiles us. It's what's on the inside that comes out, that makes itself known. And Mark inserts here a little side note here, as, as you see, if, if your Bible is in red letters, you'll see the red letters of Jesus. And then you also see this little side note. Thus he declared all foods to be clean. In other words, Mark is saying at this point, Jesus is showing that it's not about clean or unclean foods anymore. It's about what comes out of the heart of man. And now we know that that doesn't fully materialize until we see over in Acts chapter 10, Peter receive a vision from the Lord. And what's the first step in receiving that vision to go to the Gentiles? The first step is to show Peter that nothing that God created is unclean. That there's not that distinction between clean and unclean foods. And after that, Peter goes to Cornelius. And after that, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And so here we see this this hint in Jesus' teachings as to what's going to come when the gospel comes to the earth. Now Mark and other gospel writers, especially Matthew, when he's talking about this similar period in Jesus' ministry... Uh, In Matthew chapter 15, he makes it very clear that Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That was Jesus' primary mission. But along the way, Jesus meets with Gentiles. He treats them with respect. He heals them. He values them as other people. And we see that all throughout these chapters in Mark. Next, in Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 24, Jesus meets a Gentile woman and he heals her daughter. Because of her great faith. Later on, he would go to an area called Decapolis, which means ten cities. It's an area of, of, of just a large conglomerate there of cities. And there would have been many Gentiles in the area where he heals a deaf and a mute man. And then it's, it's later on, right after that happens, that Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now earlier, when he fed the 5,000, that would have been a Jewish audience. But here, as he's with the, as with the 4,000, later on, He's dealing with a group that wasn't completely Gentile, but would have been a mix of Jew and Gentile, maybe even predominantly Gentile. And so it's interesting to see that Jesus is doing these same miracles that he's done among the Jews. Now he's doing it among the Gentiles. In other words, he's he's showing that Jesus did, while he came to the lost sheep of Israel, he didn't turn down a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. He's willing to heal the child of a Roman centurion. Jesus is also reaching out to these Gentiles that he meets along the way as well. And we'll see how that's fulfilled when the church begins to reach out to them and the gospel comes to the Gentiles. So I think we can be reminded as we think of these these baskets full of bread that Jesus' blessings, that God's blessings 
are intended for all of us. And that's helpful. That's especially helpful as we think about evangelism. When we understand that God's message is for all, that the gospel is for everyone, living in the Christian age, when we look back and see how it spread through the book of Acts, the excitement was that the gospel was for every person, that everyone they came in contact with was in reach of this gift God had promised. D.T. Niles was made famous for saying evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Can you sense the urgency there as one person who is in search of food tells another where to find it? And if we have that same kind of urgency as we spread God's message, we'll want to spread that to all those around us. And we have a group even this week that's taking the gospel to people who have never heard it in El Salvador. And that's wonderful. We have groups that go all throughout the year taking mission trips to places because the gospel is for everyone, and that's wonderful. I wonder, though, if there aren't some people here at home that we sometimes overlook, and yet the gospel is for them as well. I wonder if there aren't some people in our area that might not be from our same background. We might not share much in common. They might not be from our socioeconomic class. But the gospel is for them as well. There may be some people, even in our neighborhood, that we're friendly with and that we say hello to in the street, and yet the gospel is for them as well. I don't know about you, but that's a convicting thought for me. When I stop and think about all the people I come into contact with on a daily basis and how easy it is to forget that every person we lock eyes with is a soul that Jesus died for, and every single individual is eligible to receive this gospel message. And since we are here on a Sunday night, and since it's a little more relaxed, I want to take a moment to share a challenge with all of us as a congregation. Because as we look around a, a room this large with a crowd this large, chances are you could probably look around, and I don't know of many of us that could even name every person that's sitting here with us. Uh, it, it's, it's such a large group. It's wonderful and encouraging to be together. And yet as we think about how we reach out to others, did you know that a big part of our outreach takes place when visitors come into our worship services? I don't know about you, but I have relationships in this congregation. Uh, Catherine and I have some friendships that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. And it's wonderful to see those connections take place. And you know what the challenge is as we grow closer together? The challenge is that we can get so excited about those relationships, we forget about those who come in and visit. And sometimes we can get so focused on our relationships with others that we're already friends with and we already have a history with, we forget to reach out to some people who are coming in. The ultimate temptation would be to become sort of a closed group and people would walk in and they would say, well, I don't know if, if there's really room for me here. And none of us want that. And none of us have displayed that attitude, but it's going to be a challenge, especially as we continue to grow. And so let me challenge us. The most difficult thing that a visitor can do is walk into an auditorium full of people he or she doesn't know. That is difficult. If you've never tried that, I suggest you try walking into a place where you've never met anyone. If you're visiting with us tonight, we're thrilled that you're here. And we want you to stick around so that we can get to know you. We appreciate what it takes for you to just come into an auditorium with us. The gospel is for everyone, especially for those who are coming and visiting with us. Let's all work hard this year to reach out to those people who come in and visit. It makes things so much easier 
when someone comes in to visit for the first time and we reach out to them with a handshake and with a smile, and I know what the challenge is because it's a challenge that I face, chances are you may introduce yourself to someone who's been a member here longer than you have been. And if you haven't done that, let me tell you, I have. And so I know what that's like to introduce yourself to someone and they've been here longer than you have. Let's just make an agreement as a congregation that we're not going to let that bother us. If, if you're a member and someone comes up to you and they introduce themselves to you and you've been a member here for 20 or 30 years, why not? Let's, let's just smile and let's just laugh about it and move on because we understand how important it is for us as a congregation to grow closer together and also to draw those people in. God's blessings are for all. And the blessings he's given us here at Mount Juliet are for all who would come and be a part of this church family. Let's spread those messages. I I can't tell you the difference that this church family has made in in my life, the kindness that has been shown, and I know that kindness is available. Let's make sure we're showing that to every person who walks through the door. Not anything to put a guilt trip on us, but just a challenge for us, just an encouragement to us as we continue on through this year. But not only that, I think a lesson we can learn from these leftovers is that God's power is more than enough. Some have tried to look into maybe the numbers of the baskets full here in these miracles. That In the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full of bread left over, and that stands for the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and in the 4,000, there are seven baskets left over, and seven is a perfect, complete number, and that sounds for all the world that was going, this message was going to go out to. I don't know if the number of baskets is important. I think the overriding message here is when Jesus performs a miracle, there is more than enough to go around. When Jesus performs a miracle, you don't have to worry about running out of bread. When God performs a miracle, his power is more than enough to meet the need. God's power is more than enough. Can you just imagine for a minute, I know that we've studied this, uh, this maybe in Sunday school growing up. This was a lesson you've learned, but can you just imagine for a moment with me, what if even in a room like this, what if I took this loaf of bread and started here in this end, and started handing it out, how far do you think this loaf of bread would make? Even if if we just encourage everyone to just take a little bit, do you think it would make it all the way around in a room this large? I don't know. It would be tough with bread that's this good to make it all the way around in a room this large. And even if we did, do you think we all would have eaten enough to be satisfied? The text tells us they were satisfied. Do you ever wonder how that miracle took place? Was it like that jar of oil in the Old Testament that just kept giving and the more they broke out, the more that was there? Did loaves of bread just appear all at once? Can you imagine what it would have been like to witness that? People taking just a few loaves and a few fish and putting it in Jesus' hands and he was able to do something incredible. Did you know that principle still exists today? If we take the talents and the abilities that God has given us and we put them in God's hands, he can do far beyond what we can ask or imagine. You know, if you look around long enough, you could probably find someone. And if, if you look around, you could probably say, you know, that person teaches a class better than I can teach a class. That person practices hospitality better than I could. I wish I could come up with the ways to serve that she does. I wish I could remember to do this the way he does. We could always minimize our own talents and even, even feel like we don't bring much to the table. But do you know, if we just put that in the hands of God, if I just give my talents up to the Lord, he can use them. He can do more than I can ask or imagine. Just like those few loaves of bread. He could feed thousands with those loaves. Imagine what he could do if we gave him our talents. As we fill out those SOS forms and we look at the different jobs, it would be easy to say, I just don't think I'm good enough at that. 
But what would happen if we just gave ourselves over to God, let him mold us and shape us and use us? I wonder what could take place. How different would this community be in 20 years if I decided I'm going to let God use my entire life and all my talents, everything I have? How different would our lives be? I'm reminded of an individual living in Ukraine that was converted as an adult just a few years ago, really. And he began to study. And after he was converted, he studied and he studied. And before long, he was preaching. He was preaching to Christians in Ukraine. And the congregation where he preaches decided it would be a worthwhile investment to buy some airtime on a local television station. And so this preacher, uh, his name is Sasha. And uh, if you ever travel over to Ukraine, you'll find that many of the preachers there are named Sasha. But, uh, but Sasha is known, he's separated from the rest as being TV Sasha. That's what they call him, TV Sasha, because he, he preaches on this TV show, and this show would go out locally, and he would talk about how to become a Christian and give some information for some correspondence courses. And the requests came in, and they kept coming in, and he kept sending them out. And pretty soon people were, were sending in requests, how do we begin a congregation? We've got some Christians here. How do we start a congregation? And so they would send information out on that. Before long, Eastern European missions saw what was taking place and began to fund them and give them even more resources and more materials. And other Christians came in and joined this effort. There are thousands of Christians in Ukraine. There are hundreds of congregations meeting in people's homes and apartments as a result of a man who was converted as an adult and decided he wanted to do something for the Lord. And God is using his talents and the talents of so many others in a remarkable way. Who knows what could happen if we let God use all our talents? Why not give ourselves completely to him? There's no telling what he could do with that. And lastly, as we think about lessons from these leftovers, God's ultimate concern is for our souls. And I think that's evident in the way the apostles seem to continually misunderstand what Jesus is saying. When he talks about the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees, they misunderstand they're thinking of physical bread. Later in these next chapters, he'll talk about being a servant and what it's like to be a servant and to be humbled like a child. And they'll keep asking who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It seems like they were missing the point here because Jesus was thinking spiritually rather than physically. God's ultimate concern is for our souls. Miracles where he's able to feed thousands of people are wonderful. But was that really his ultimate intent? Was to make sure that those thousands of people have bread? Or was there something beyond that that he wanted to teach them? I think John 6 gives us some insight into that question. And that'll be the last place we turn this evening. If you turn over to John chapter 6. John tells about the feeding of the 5,000. And he tells about what happened immediately after that. As a crowd comes to Jesus. And Jesus responds to them in verse 26, and he reveals their true motivation for being there. He says, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you're not coming to me because of the power I have from God. You're coming to me because you ate the bread and it filled you up and you're here for some more. But Jesus had something deeper in mind. You know, we don't have to spend long flipping channels before we find religious groups and religious leaders that are preaching a gospel that tells us if we'll just send in some money or send in some gifts, God will bless us materially on this earth. And God will give us happiness on this earth. And we can live a materially wealthy and materially happy life on this earth. And I think absolutely when we pray to God, we can bring to Him our physical concerns, our physical needs, 
God cares about us living on the earth. But is, is physical, material wealth, is material happiness, is that God's ultimate goal for his people? I believe scripture teaches us that God's ultimate goal is for our souls. To be concerned with where our souls will wind up eternally and how we can affect other souls' eternity. As Peter would write, God is not willing that any should perish, but all have everlasting life. That's God's ultimate goal for us. And Jesus reflects the same thing here. Because as he takes these people who are interested in physical bread, he says in verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. In verse 35, he would say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. We can learn a lot from the leftovers here in these miracles. We can think about the bread and the loaves that were there. We can be astonished by that. But let's never miss the fact that Jesus came as the bread of life. Not the bread of physical life that will keep us from being physically hungry, but the bread that can satisfy our eternal needs, our eternal desires. What are we going to do with the bread of life? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves is, We think about baskets of leftovers. Because when we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, it's amazing what takes place. Jesus takes the bread. He he gives thanks for it, breaks it, and passes it around. That's an amazing and a wonderful story. But even more amazing than that is when the bread of life prayed in the garden, wrestling with his own uh, future, the job he knew he had to carry through, Praying, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Being arrested and having his flesh broken by those nails as he's nailed to the cross. That bread of life is available to all of us. And it's far better than any bread that we could eat physically and put the leftovers into a basket. Because God's power is available to all of us. Not only that, but his power is more than enough to meet our spiritual needs. And ultimately, God's concern is not just for our physical well-being, but our spiritual and eternal destiny. This evening, the good news of the gospel is that bread of life was sacrificed for us. That he rose again from the tomb and that he's reigning eternally and that we have the opportunity to share that eternal life with him. All we have to do is turn our lives around, submit our will to his, confess him, put him on in baptism and start living a life that's modeled after the bread of life that came down from heaven. And every single one of us has the opportunity to make that decision or rededicate our lives to following the bread of life. If you need to make a decision, if there's any way that we can help you, please come as we stand and as we sing together.